navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the finale, the big finale of this six-part series on how to litigate a catastrophic automobile accident case. Uh, A few programming notes uh, as far as programming ahead that I just want to give to you all while I have your attention. Uh, First of all, uh, I'm pleased to announce the uh, next series that I'll be doing starts in two months. September 7th. Again, we'll be doing this uh, on Wednesdays, the first Wednesday of each month. And this is going to be on how to litigate a construction accident injury case. And it's going to be a four-parter, September, October, November, December. We're going to talk about Labor Law 240, uh, Subdivision 1, the Scaffold Law, Labor Law 241, Subdivision 6. Talk about the Industrial Code, Motion Practice, Experts, all kinds of good stuff. So uh, please be on the lookout for registration that will be forthcoming for the fall. I'm also really excited to announce today that uh, we are launching the mentorship uh, program. And uh, the mentorship program is something that is going to start the following Wednesday on September 14th. And I'm going to ask if um, if uh, Michelle, you'd be kind enough to drop a link uh, in the chat that everyone can see about that. Basically, the mentorship program is what I've been doing for all of these series, but on a small interactive basis. So it's going to be discussing trial skills, marketing, litigating personal injury cases, building your practice, referrals uh, in an interactive format as opposed to a lecture format like this. So it'll be a Zoom and it's going to be once a month for six months starting on September 14th. So if you're interested, please uh, download uh, the application uh, link. And, uh, and apply to do it. I'd love to have you on board for that. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to the launch of that program. Uh, lastly, uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting with so many of you uh, in one-on-one complimentary Zooms. If we have not met yet, please uh, click the link that Michelle will also drop in the chat uh, here that goes right to my calendar. I'd love to meet you and just chat for 30 minutes about anything and everything. So uh, please do that. All right, now that I got that all the way, Let's talk about the trial, uh, part six uh, of this series. And hopefully you've been with me from parts one up until now, because this is really the culmination of everything we've gone through uh, in the first five parts. And if you were hoping to get a whole uh, lecture on trial skills, I can't do that in the next, you know, 52 minutes. I did have a whole CLE series in the fall, last fall on trial skills where we went through every element of the trial from opening statements, direct exam, jury selection, cross summations and all that. So please check that out if you want detailed uh, information on trial skills. My goal today is to chat with you all about bringing it home, right? We've talked about working so hard to build up uh, your liability uh, evidence, your damages evidence in a catastrophic automobile accident case. And hopefully the goal is by building it up with the proper investigation, getting the facts, getting the right experts for liability, the accident reconstruction experts, the trucking experts, getting the proper damages experts like a life care planner, an economist, a physician to evaluate your client, 
Um, doing all of these things, hopefully, is going to get your case resolved. And the majority of the time, as we all know, cases will settle, especially uh, once uh, if, if they survive summary judgment and they're not dismissed. Uh, they will likely settle before uh, a jury renders a verdict at some point. But if a case does not settle as much as we all would like them to, you got to step it up and you got to try the case. And I've used the example of what you've got to do to prepare and prepare to get in the boxing ring. And, and here's where you got to really step it up and be able to knock your adversary on their ass, point blank. You have to show them that, hey, we gave you the playbook. We told you our experts. We told you what we were bringing. And now we're bringing it. You had your chance. You still have your chance until the jury returns a verdict. But, you know, we're here to try the case now uh, because you, you're, you're not seeing it the way that you should be. And we're going to show you why our numbers were where they were in our mediation or in our demand. Uh, we have good experts. We've shown you what they're going to testify to. We've given our pretrial disclosures and we were serious about it. And now we're going to do. So catastrophic automobile accident cases are big cases, right? We're talking about catastrophic injuries, death, paraplegia, quadriplegia, loss of limbs, disfigurement. And these are the types of cases that are going to justify a jury coming in with a large award of damages. If as a plaintiff's attorney, you do your job correctly. Um, it's not going to happen if your adversary on the defense side, for those of you out there saying, hey, it's not going to be a big damages award because I'm a great attorney and I'm going to prepare just like Smiley's preparing. And I'm going to, and I'm going to show why we didn't pay on that case. And I'm going to show why we think we're on the right side and why we're going to convince a jury that, you know, the case just doesn't have merit. Uh, there's no liability or the damages aren't as bad as the plaintiffs have made it out to be. So you need to be prepared and use everything that you built up to the moment of trial, use your experts, use everything you've been working on and putting your, putting your effort and energies and finances into. If you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you're spending a lot of money. Um, it is not uncommon uh, for my firm to be at six figures or greater by the time we're trying a case or starting to try a case. And the stakes are high. They are high for everybody. The plaintiff's lawyer, wants to bring home the good verdict for the plaintiff. Uh, the defense attorney uh, doesn't want to get smacked with a big verdict, a high exposure case. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the defense lawyer from their firm, from their insurance company client or their private corporate client. So there's, there's a lot of pressure on everybody. This is not a summary jury trial where the maximum upside is $25,000 and, uh, and the maximum downside is zero. I mean, here you're talking about perhaps turning down a seven-figure offer because it's an offer in the low seven figures and you believe your evidence in your case supports a high seven-figure, even an eight-figure award of damages. So you could, you know, there's a lot of risk. So it's a little nerve-wracking, right? It's nerve-wracking for new lawyers. It's nerve-wracking for experienced lawyers because the stakes are high. Um, I don't know many lawyers who don't get anxious before a big, big trial or any trial for that matter. And I certainly do. I always get anxious before any trial because you want to bring your best and you want to do a great job. And there's a lot of variables that you can't control. So preparation, preparation, preparation. You know, that's my motto. 
And you know that there's no more important time than trial. We're preparing for depositions. We're preparing for motions. We're preparing everything. But now we're going to trial. And when you have a high stakes trial, such as one you will have in a catastrophic automobile accident case, the preparation starts early. And if you've done and implemented what we've discussed over the last five parts up to today, you're already more than halfway there because you've spent all this time analyzing your case, getting the right experts, knowing what your economic damages are, knowing the strengths and weaknesses of your liability case. You've argued your points in motion practice. You've tried to negotiate. You know what the issues are. So now when you're preparing for trial, you really need to pull it all together. You need to pull together all of these elements that you've been working on. And that takes a lot of time. So if you see that trial coming up on your calendar, you need to start earmarking days of the week or on the weekend, whenever you can find some quiet time to steal away from all the other craziness we all have in our uh, professional and personal lives to really start outlining and designing the trial. The trial is a presentation and your audience is the jury. It is not the judge. It is not your adversary. It's not even your client. Your sole focus is to persuade the jury that your side of the case is the right side of the case, okay? And that's how you have to approach a trial in a high stakes case. You have to approach it. How best can I present all of this information that we've developed over the last several years in litigation? How can we best present it to a jury in a way that'll get us the results that we want? Community setting that we're in. So please share your thoughts. Uh, if you put questions in, I'll uh, take them when I can, but definitely we always do a Q&A from two to 2.30. That's where a lot of the, the rubber hits the pavement. So uh, please hang in there with me for that. All right. Knowing that the jury is your audience, what I like to do when I'm preparing for one of these big trials, uh, there's two things initially that I focus on. The first is the order of witnesses. Now, generally, uh, there's a flow that you would expect to happen. Let's say it's a unified trial uh, where in some jurisdictions, it's presumed that you're going to try damages and liability all together as opposed to a bifurcated trial, where in some jurisdictions, first you try liability, get a verdict. Then if there's any award of, um, for the plaintiff as far as liability on the defense, then you go to damages in a second trial. Um, so you're always naturally going to go with you know, your liability case uh, first, and then your damages case first in a unified trial uh, when you're not forced to break it up. But the order of witnesses doesn't always have to be the plaintiff first, uh, the doctor second, uh, or however you're thinking of it. So sometimes you may have an excellent plaintiff or defendant, uh, because on the defense side, you should think about your order of witnesses as well. And, you know, you don't always have a say in it because a plaintiff, I like to call a lot of defense witnesses in my case in chief. Uh, and that's part of what you should think about. You should think about starting strong and ending strong. I want you to think about that in anything you do in the practice of law, whether it's an oral argument, whether it's an opening statement, whether it's a direct exam, cross-exam, or summation, or the entire trial. You always want to start strong 
and finish strong because first impressions and last impressions are the most important, especially with the jury. So you want your first witness, you know, the one stepping up to the plate first to be a strong witness. And so if your plaintiff is super strong and you think everyone's going to like your, your client, if you're the plaintiff's lawyer, then yeah, you may want to go with the plaintiff first and go through everything. But maybe your plaintiff is so good, you may say, we've got a lot of good witnesses. Maybe I'm going to save my plaintiff for the last to bring it home. So when my plaintiff ends up talking about how devastated they are to be paralyzed from this accident or have lost their limb or whatever the injury may be, maybe that's how you want to end your case in chief as a plaintiff in front of the jury. There is no requirement to the order. So give it some serious thought. Think of it as telling a story to the jury and how they're going to perceive the different witnesses as they come in uh, and how it tells the story that you want to tell. If I have a case where um, it's a really bad injury case and maybe the person is so disabled and they live with a spouse or a parent, I may want that parent or spouse to testify before my client to sort of lay the groundwork of what a jury is going to hear uh, about what the spouse or parent has observed uh, their loved one suffering as a result of it. You may want to call there's a really bad adverse witness. In my cases where I know that the defendant, the main defendant uh, is not good uh, in how they present and what they say, and uh, maybe I want to subpoena them and put them on first and just go right at across examining them as an adverse witness uh, and start off the case that way. So there's lots of different ways you can present your case. We can't always control the order of witnesses, sometimes based on expert schedules. You have to take them out of order or whatever it may be. But at least you should plan that in a perfect world, if you can order them, try and figure out what you think would be best. And it's not always easy, and there's no right or wrong answer. It's an art, not a science. So you want to speak with your colleagues, your family members, give me a ring. I love workshopping cases. I always bounce it off with my father, with my partner, with our associate. What do you guys think? You know, How do you think this would, this would be if we put this witness on first? So think about the order of witnesses. It's really important. The other thing I really start to focus on early on is opening statements. Now, I've talked about this in the trial skill series of a whole, I've done a lot of CLEs just on opening statement. I could talk for days just on openings. Opening statements are one of my favorite, favorite parts of a trial. As a plaintiff's lawyer, I get the first bite. The jury's sitting there. They're not bored by shuttling to court every day and hearing through the arguments and the judge and the delays. They're ready. I like to say it's like uh, they're, they're, they're showing up for a movie feature film, the previews are done. They've got their popcorn. They're sitting back. They're like, all right, let's see. What do they got? We've been hearing all this stuff in jury selection and there have been all these delays, but finally we're getting to the trial. And who do they hear from first? Me, the plaintiff's lawyer. And if you're the plaintiff's lawyer, it is a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous opportunity uh, as a plaintiff's lawyer to have a jury sitting there with their full attention on you, listening to you uninterrupted, no witnesses, no uh, judge jumping in, most likely no objections. And I talk about how to deal with that in, in my prior CLE. But you can give the whole overview of your case to a jury and they're sitting there and they're fresh and they're ready for it. So I'm a huge believer, huge believer in giving a 
detailed and thorough opening statement. I do not uh, recommend the five-minute theory where some people say, oh, well, there's no evidence anyway. Just get up, give them a brief overview, and then get to it. Um, I am, and some, some people believe in that and may have great success. My personal opinion is to give your whole spiel to the jury. And the way that you do that is you're, you're starting off, this is all the presentation uh, to the jury. And there's things you need to do uh, to be an effective trial lawyer on a big stakes case or in any case for that matter. Your credibility is super important. From the minute you open up your mouth in front of that jury and jury selection, all the way through to verdict. Because when you get to verdict and you're asking them to award your client money, your credibility is going to come into play then. That's when you're calling in your chips. Okay. That's when you say to the jury, you remember when I told you in jury selection and I asked you, I said, if we prove our case, um, will you have any problem awarding significant damages? Uh, and if we don't prove our case, you can kick me out of court. And you all said, yes, that's fine. Well, we believe we've proven our case and this is why. And now it's your turn to live up to your side of the bargain. But if you've lost credibility, if you've told them things that they're going to hear and they didn't hear it, um, if you've tried to like hide stuff or keep stuff away from them or downplay things, um, it's just not going to work well and you're going to lose them. So credibility is super important for a jury. Being honest, making eye contact with jurors, scrolling the jury box, making a brief pause of eye contact with everyone, super, super important. It's important that you concede weak parts of your case. Yes, you're going to hear that my, you're going to hear, I'm sure the defense is going to make a huge deal about the fact that my client before this horrific accident had a martini at dinner. Okay, you're going to hear that. And they may even call on a toxicologist to talk about that. We don't shy away from that. And I'm confident that after I'm done questioning that toxicologist, and you're going to hear me ask questions about, do they even know what the blood alcohol content was at the time of the accident? Do they have any basis for determining they were intoxicated? When you hear me ask these questions, you're going to see that it's, it's something that they're going to try and bring out. I think they may or may not, but given the prior litigation proceedings, they made a big deal of it. We'll see if they do. Maybe they won't. All right. So you can bring things out but you do it on your terms as opposed to waiting for it to come out uh, and you don't say anything about the martini. And then the very first question the defense asks when they get up to cross-examine my client after a really great direct talking about their damages is you threw back a vodka martini before you got into that car, didn't you? Right. But now you've given the preview to the jury. You're not hiding it. You're owning it and you're spinning it in the way that you think is a fair read on the evidence. So you want to give a detailed opening about the liability, about the damages. And even though it's not evidence, as long as you preface it by saying, we intend to prove, we expect the evidence to show, okay, uh, then you're fine. Okay. So I think a lot about opening statements. I think about it before I even have a trial date. I think about what I'm going to come out with, what my theme is going to be. I talk about themes in my trial skills series. So check that out. So start giving a lot of thought to it. Start writing it out. Start writing out outlines. Start thinking about it. Because then if you get up first and give a, a, a full-on, thorough, really good opening statement, as I do every single case, 
And 90% of the time, my adversary gets up and says, well, okay, Mr. Smiley had a lot to say there. All right. Um, you know, but what he said is an evidence. That's not evidence, members of the jury. You haven't heard anything yet. And so it's important you keep an open mind and you hear everything because we believe the evidence will show it was the plaintiff's fault and that the defendant is not responsible. And I look forward to speaking with you at the end of the case. Thank you. All right. You compare that short opening. Literally, I've seen openings that short. Um, and if not that short, not much longer. I feel defense lawyers have absolutely blown an opportunity. So if you're on the defense side, don't do that. Give a detail. Say, we're going to tell you why. Own it. Say, it's horrific what happened to the plaintiff. And we don't dispute the horrific nature of injuries, being paralyzed, and it's horrible. But you all gave me a promise that you, you, would, you would look at the evidence. And if there's no liability, we're sorry. It's tough, but that's the law, okay? You have to own the facts. You have to come through it with credibility. And that's how you win cases. So I know this isn't a, a lecture on opening, but you can see I'm passionate about it. And I think it's a great opportunity. So you really need to focus on your opening, your order of witnesses, and starting off the trial uh, as a credible um, advocate for your client, one who the jury is going to think is being straight with them. Because if a jury believes that they're being messed with, or you think you're smarter than them, or you're going to bring in an expert just because they have a degree, uh, say things that a jury is going to expect to follow along with it, you're in for some trouble. So your witnesses have to have credibility too. When you're thinking about your order of witnesses, think about how your experts and your other witnesses, how they're going to present and explain to them the importance of credibility at trial. Now, you have your experts, right? You have your accident reconstruction expert, your trucking expert. You have your, uh, maybe a biomechanical engineer. Maybe you've got your, uh, life care planner, your expert examining physician, and you have your uh, economist. Now, have you met with them or did you just get a report? Have you even seen them in person? Have you Zoomed with them? Do you know how they're going to present in front of a jury? Maybe they write one hell of a report and they say everything you needed them to say to, to support your case, but they really don't relate well to juries. Maybe they're too professorial. They use language and words that a jury is going to fly over their head. The best experts are those that are simple when they speak, use simple terms, make things easy to understand. So now you're going to find out if it's a good expert or not. And so I always ask if it's an expert I've never worked with before in a case, I reach out to my colleagues and I'll say, do you have a good expert uh, in this field? And I like it when I, and I say, have you met with that expert? Have they gone to trial for you? How'd they hold up at trial? Um, because if your expert doesn't do well at trial, that's going to hurt you too. So I know a lot of you are thinking, sitting there, uh-oh, I don't know if my expert who I have is going to be good at trial. Well, you better find out now. And you better reach out and set up a Zoom and ask about the expert's experience at trial and get a feel for the expert. See if, if you like the expert or not, if you can relate to the expert or not. Be objective. Don't just say, yeah, 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 they've got all these degrees. Uh, because if your expert's not good, 
you need to start working on it unless you can get another one in time, uh, which is unlikely. So you need to prepare your experts the same way you prepare your, your own clients to make sure that they understand their credibility is important, to trim off all the fat. Maybe they stretched it a little bit in some of their reports, but that doesn't mean they have to bring that out at trial. Just because they put it in a report or you've disclosed that they may testify as to something, they can't be cross-examined on reports. Those don't come in, okay? Um, they can under certain circumstances if they say something and then they can be impeached by it. But if they don't purposely bring something affirmatively out, then it's not brought out. So there are ways to work with it, but credibility is super important. So look through your experts, say, all right, great. I have all these experts on liability damages. How should I present it? What's the best way to present these experts? Certainly in damages, you want to do it in a way that makes sense. I would always have the examining doctor go first. Then I would have the life care planner go second. Then I would have a vocational expert go third. Then I have the economist wrap it all up and put all the numbers on the board. Okay. So think about the order of witnesses. Think about your experts. Think about taking the time to prepare them. You must, must do that in advance. You're going to be spending a lot of money. You've got five experts. They're all going to charge you five, 10, 15, $20,000 for trial, hourly for their prep time. You're going to be writing checks. So get ready but you have to do it. That's how you win big cases, okay? You can't bluff it. You can't put all this hard work into the end and then fold like a house of cards. There's a lot of defense firms and insurance carriers that are counting on you to do just that. They look, they say, oh, I've never tried a case. This person's a solo practitioner. They've got all these experts. Let's push it. Let's see when it comes time to put on their case if they can call all these experts. We can always offer the money afterwards, right? So you better be ready to go. And if you're not, then you need to get involved with a firm that can do. Reach out to me. Reach out to other firms that are used to spending money to, to work up the cases. Not only do you need to have good experts, good witnesses, good flow when you're getting ready to try a catastrophic injury case, but you need good exhibits, good demonstrative evidence. Everybody loves demonstrative evidence. Remember when you were kids sitting in the classroom and it was just another day after day of your teacher coming in and talking. But that one day the teacher comes in with, you know, a movie projector. It says, we're going to do something different today. We're going to go outside and look at this or field trip. I mean, that's when people sit a little bit further up on their seat, say, okay, all right, you got my attention. That's what good exhibits do. You could do video exhibits. Uh, we do day in the life videos for uh, paralyzed clients to show a jury what it's like behind the scenes for them to just go through their normal daily activities. Um, we'll have blow up photographs of family members of a decedent if it's a death case. Uh, in cases involving uh, losses of limbs and prosthetics, you bring the prosthetics in. Uh, in cases I have where my client doesn't have a leg and we'll sit there and my client will show how they, what the morning routine is, putting on the sock and putting on the padding and putting on the prosthetic and what's involved. You need to think about how you're going to demonstrate the damages in the case. If it's liability and you've got a good accident reconstruction expert, you're going to want to have the animation of the accident ready to be queued up and projected onto a big screen. You're going to want to maybe a blow up of over overhead of the intersection or drone footage, uh, 3D uh, animation. There's so much that can be done today. And a lot of our academy's sponsors uh, help you in that. You saw Medivisuals. 
these medical um, 3D dimensional, you know, models, uh, enlargements, it helps the jury really relate. So I'm all in on that. And I know a lot of lawyers like to pop stuff up on like big screens. So they'll just like bring their computer and I've done that as well. But to the extent you can have blow ups, uh, you know, where you put it up on foam core photos, documents, images, and it's a, you know, two feet by three feet size court exhibit. It's pretty good size. I really like to use those. I like to be able to hold them up in summation, show them to a jury. Um, jurors can take those back into the jury room if they've run in, into evidence as exhibits. So think about your demonstrative evidence. And this stuff all takes time. You cannot pull it together. Although sometimes you can when you run into problems and it's not fun the last minute. But you have to start early on these things. You have to start preparing uh, and creating demonstrative evidence and having it ready for use. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD652. Again, that's POD652. Let's talk about the testimony of the plaintiff. In a catastrophic injury case, the presentation of damages is so important, so, so, so important for a jury to understand the extensive nature of the damages. And it is not easy. Even if your client is paralyzed and they see your client coming into uh, court in the wheelchair every day and talking with everyone and dress nicely, they may sort of get a little numb to it and used to it. But it's only until you do that day in the life video and you tie that in with the testimony of your client who talks about what a struggle it is just to get sneakers on, just to get sneakers on, just to wash his or her hair, just to go to the toilet, just to urinate, the catheterization process. You know, the things that we don't want to talk about, you have to talk about that they can't move their own bowels without taking a stool softener and using their fingers. I mean, there is a lot of horrific things that catastrophically injured people have to go through to function on a day-to-day basis. And many clients and plaintiffs and injured people don't like to talk about it. And it's understandable they don't. But in your prep session with them, preparing them for trial, which you should spend a lot of time doing, multiple sessions, you need to tell them they need to get into that nasty stuff. They need to get into the nitty gritty. You need to ask them, what's the nastiest, worst thing that you have to do that most people could never relate to? And that's what you need to have them talk about. Because you need that in evidence. So when you're going to ask a jury to award seven figures and up in damages, you have a basis for it. You can talk about it. They can understand it. And they can understand you're not just asking them to award money out of for nothing and that your clients just is going to spend it and waste it. You need to show why they're entitled to be compensated for pain and suffering that they've gone through and what they need and what they aspire. They're going to need to get themselves around and they want to be independent and they hate being a 45 year old person 
who has to ask their kids or their friends or their parents to drive them around because they don't have a, a van that they can get their wheelchair into and that they can have outfitted so that they can take themselves. And they're going to need money for that van. And that's going to be part of the life care plan. And they want access to get so that they can try and uh, have the best um, prosthetic devices available, you know, the blades, so they can try and learn how to start running that they can't use with regular prosthetics, but it's not covered by insurance and it costs tens of thousands of dollars. So you need to build up the damages. There's a reason why these are catastrophic cases, because the injuries are catastrophic. They are life-changing, daily basis forever life-changing that God willing, none of us um, have or will ever have to suffer. And you need to bring that out in every essence of what you do at this trial. So you need to prepare your witness. You have to have, find ways to relate your plaintiff to the jury. In New York State Court, we get questionnaires and on it for the jury uh, that they have to fill out. And they chose what, it asks them what their hobbies are. That's one of the most crucial things I look at. If I see that jury number five puts for hobbies gardening and jury number six puts cycling, right? What if your client used to love gardening or love cycling or something close to it? Let's say loved rock climbing and now they can't anymore because they're paralyzed and it's super hard when you're paralyzed to rock climb, okay? Then when you're up in summation, you know jury number five likes cycling and jury number six likes gardening. Then you could say to the jury, they don't know necessarily that you're thinking it, but you can look at them and say, you heard the testimony of how my client loved rock climbing every weekend. And that was taken away from him in an instant. He will never be able to do that again. Imagine if you had a hobby that you loved. Imagine if you look forward to cycling every weekend or spending your time gardening and someone took that away from you for the rest of your life. How would that feel? How much of a loss would that be to you? So look at those questionnaires, bring things out that you think can make your plaintiff who's been catastrophically injured relatable. Now in the materials, I've given you a direct exam. I couldn't find one that I really liked of a catastrophic auto case, but I found the one of my client I've talked about, Dustin Dibble, awesome young man who lost his leg in a subway accident. And so I gave you the day one and day two or part one and part two of his direct examination when I questioned him. And you'll see how I go into the background of his story, how he was the star kicker on his, you know, high school and college football team. And now he can't kick anymore. Right. And you go into the background and then how he talks about damages and how I finish strong and I have him talk about, you know, how he's worried as he gets older, he's young now, but it's going to be harder to get around without his whole leg and he's going to want to run around with his grandchildren. And that's what he thinks about. Uh, and you, you think about that when you have elderly people who may be grandparents on the jury who want to play with their grandkids and imagine what if they can. So that's in the materials. You want to work on your experts to explain to them the importance of humanizing your client, not just look at it that you're talking about a life care plan, and, but have your, have your doctor, have your life care planner say, this plaintiff is going to have a really, really hard time. It's not easy doing X, Y, and Z. That's why we put this in here. So you really need to bring the, the, the depth of the damages through all of the witnesses. And that's going to be on the direct of your experts in liability and damages. And then it's going to be really important when you get to the damages 
with your experts of getting those hard numbers, those what I call hard numbers. We talked about this earlier. Those are the costs that you can document, an actual number that you can give to the jury that's a cost of medical treatment, that's a cost of a van, that's a cost of retrofitting a house, that's the cost of medicines, of doctor's visits. That's what a life care plan spells out. You want that not only for your expert to testify to it, but you want that up on a big blow up, on a big exhibit. So whether you take the actual life care plan and enlarge it for the jury to see and have the expert go through it as part of his or her testimony, or you want them to talk about it first, and then when they get to the totals, maybe get up and write on a, have a couple blank whiteboards and have them write the number for medical care total, automotive adapted uh, equipment total, um, house retrofitting totals, and then ask them to add it up and they should have with them all of that information. So then you have that, you mark it into evidence, and then it's a nice big board with all these numbers on it for a jury to see. Seeing it after hearing it helps. And it removes the shock value when they've seen an explanation for why you're saying you need $5.72 million for your client for future life care and medical treatment and needs. You're not just pulling a number out of the air. You've, you've explained it. They've heard it from the plaintiff. They've heard it from the life care planner. And then you do the same thing with the economist when you're doing the direct exam of your economist. Again, you're going to want those numbers written on a board or blown up in the report. So have them testify as to it, write it out so they can see, well, you take the 5.72 million in a life care plan and the vocational expert has talked about the loss of income of $4.2 million and you have that, then you're already almost at $10 million just in economic numbers, but they're actual numbers that a jury can grasp can understand. So when you're asking them at time of summation to award a sum of money to compensate the client, you're just going to say in your summation, first members of the jury, let's talk about the costs involved as a result of the defendant's negligence. Not only the injury, but just the, the hard numbers. Here's just what it's going to cost to live. Here's what they're going to lose that they could have earned. These are the real hard numbers, okay? And then they already have that. And then once you have that, when you get to your summation, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but in summation, when you're asking for them to award uh, money for pain and suffering, it's a really hard thing to do, really hard thing to do. And what I like to say is, well, the economics, I mean, that's the small part, right? That's just to try and make them economically sound. Uh, that has nothing to do. That's that's that has nothing to do with their loss of enjoyment of life and being able to you know race cars like they used to, go rock climbing like they used to, run around with their kids, uh, coach softball, you know whatever it may be. That's the real damages here, members of the jury. That's nothing compared to just the economic. So you're already starting off saying the economics the small part, and that's ten million dollars, right? So then when you start suggesting numbers for past pain and suffering, future pain and suffering. We need to compensate this person for the next 45 years is her life expectancy. You're going to hear the judge tell you, the table say, God willing, they're going to live another 46 years. They could live less. They could live more, hopefully. That's a long time ahead of them. 
And I like to tell the jury when I'm finishing strong in my summation, again, I do a whole lecture on summations and it's another, after opening, it's just you, all the evidence, and you got to bring it. Let me just step back because before I get carried away with summation with a little bit of time left, cross-examination of experts, the defense experts, you must take them down, okay? You must punch that bully in the face. Defense experts, nine times, 99 out of 100 times are hired guns, okay? And you can expose them for that. I do it on a regular basis. You bring out how much they're paid. You bring out that they, they're trying to be a scientific and objective, but they never actually measured anything. They didn't take the time to actually evaluate your client. They haven't even looked at this record. They haven't even done this. You need to prepare after you've done a great deposition. You work through that deposition. You work through, you find every transcript you have on them, every case they've testified in. You get the book on them. You work, 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 work. You develop a strategic cross-examination to take them down and expose them. And most hired retained experts don't like to concede anything. They won't concede the sky is, uh, is blue. They won't concede they're sitting in a witness chair. Well, you, you know, it's not always a witness chair. Maybe sometimes a juror comes, sits in it. You know, they won't give you a straight answer. And that's fine. Because then when I get up on summation, I love saying, you heard from their expert, Dr. So-and-so, saying that he's objective. The fact that he's testified for the firm 15 times previously and charged $10,000 at minimum each time, $150,000 in his pocket, they called him up again. You think he's really that objective? And if he is that objective, don't you think he could have actually measured something and not just tell us what his assumption was of the length? And uh, don't you think he could have given me a straight answer? He wouldn't give me a straight answer. You saw that. Why do you think he wouldn't give me a straight answer? So you need that because in addition to, in summation, arguing about the basis for your damages, you want a jury to be pissed off at how the defense is minimizing things and uh, downplaying and bringing in these hired guns. Now, if they bring in good experts that give honest testimony, then you say to their credit, they gave honest testimony. They acknowledge that X, Y, and Z. So you have to play as it goes, but you have to be super prepared. You have to take down experts. Expert witnesses are fair game on the plaintiff side and defense side. They are volunteering to get paid to enter into a case as opposed to a layperson, uh, a defendant, a plaintiff. Expert witnesses are fair game. Punch them in the face. They got to be ready to take it. They're getting paid for it. So do it. All right. Now, a few minutes I have left. Let me get back to summation. So in summation, it's what I like to do is I go back to my opening when I'm preparing for summation, which is already detailed and goes over everything. And then I look through the actual evidence that's come in through trial, whether it's the testimony of someone, whether it's exhibit five, the life care plan that went in, exhibit seven, the photograph. And I organize, I'll then take my opening statement and I basically use the same sort of outline and I start inserting all the exhibits. And you've heard now, you saw, let's talk about the defendant's experts for a moment in contrast to what I just went over that you heard from the plaintiff's expert, right? And that's when you can use the stuff that you've taken their expert down. So you can get a jury really worked up when you are giving a summation on a catastrophic injury case. This is it, folks. This is it. This is years of litigation. 
spending money, working on this case, eating, breathing, sleeping this case. This is your moment to shine. You get a good night's sleep. You put on your best summation clothes. You be ready to go, okay? Because you need to bring it home. You need to bring your heart, your passion, everything you have for your client. You need to bring it to this jury. They need to feel it from you. They need to feel when you're talking about how sad it is and when you pause. I get caught up sometimes in my summation. I've actually had a tear in my eye several times when I'm talking about things because I get so worked up on it. You need to bring it. And the way you bring it is by believing in your case, having established credible evidence, credible experts. And then you're going to get to the tough part. How do you ask a jury to award money when it's not a hard number, when it's not a number that you can explain that the economist came up with it or the life care? How do you award money for past pain and suffering and future pain and suffering? Those are the two slots. It's not one. It's always past from the date of the negligence to the date of their verdict and future from the date of their verdict for the rest of their future life expectancy. So you break it up into two numbers. There's no magic number, right? And I've been doing this a long time and it's still one of the hardest things to do is to ask a jury for money and not appear greedy, uh, not outrage them, not undersell your case. And so I'm gonna share with you something that I learned uh, from one of my predecessors uh, who has since passed, but he was a well-known trial attorney and I went to one of his CLEs a long time ago. And here's what he used and I use it sometimes. And he says, now I'm going to ask you a word of sum of money for my client's past pain and suffering and for future pain and suffering. It's really hard to do. It's just hard for me to give you a number because there's no set number. All I can do is recommend to you what I believe is fair and adequate compensation. And you can award what I recommend. You can award less. You can award more. It's all up to you collaboratively as a jury. And all I can do is recommend it in what I credibly feel uh, is proper compensation. And here, members of the, here to you folks, I'm stepping out for a moment. This is when your credibility comes into play. Because if you've hidden stuff or lied or things haven't come out that you said they would or the way you've handled things and then you ask for a sum of money, they're going to be like the smiley, you know, I don't know if he's even, this number is even legit. I mean, is he, what's, what's he doing? Because he hasn't been straight with us. But if they're like, wow, he's really been, he said everything he said, we think he's good. We think he's honest. He's credible. Um, they're going to they're gonna accept your numbers, I think. Uh, take it a lot easier. So going back to the jury, one of my shticks, for lack of a better word, but a way that I've learned how to phrase it. So say to them, so it's, it's a hard job for me to ask you for member, members of the jury to ask you to award a sum of money for my client. Because if I ask for too much money, you're going to think that I'm overreaching. And that's going to hurt my client. You're going to, I'm afraid you're going to penalize them because you're going to think I'm overreaching. But if I don't ask for enough money, then I'm doing my client a disservice. I mean, that's what we're here for. That's what the, that's what the justice system provides for is to compensate someone when you found as a jury that they've been wronged under the law. So here's what I'm going to suggest. And then I suggest a number for past pain and suffering and future. Um, some lawyers like to write those numbers on a board in summation. They'll write the economic numbers, they'll write the, um, the pain and suffering numbers, and they'll total them up 
and say, this is what we believe the evidence is showing. Right? And you always have to finish strong. You have to find a way, same like I've been saying, start strong, finish strong. Figure out a way to finish strong with the jury. You finish up on your theme, whatever it may be. You thank them for the time. You thank them on behalf of your client. You point to your client. You tell your client that you're going to do that. So the client looks at them and thanks them uh, with like a nod, you know, so an acknowledgement. Um, tries to make eye contact with you. You look them all in the eye and you say, thank you. And then you slowly go back to your seat. You don't put your head down and, and walk away. It's really important that you finish strong, okay? Now, one minute to go before, um, and, I'll, and I'll leave you with two things. One, it's really good to remind a jury that you're a trial lawyer, your adversary's a trial lawyer, we're gonna have other cases that we need to move on to. The judge is gonna have other cases come before her. Members of the jury, you're gonna go back to your life. But my client is gonna live with your verdict for the rest of their life, for the next 45 years. Okay, this is their life. So you wanna remind them of that. And when you've done all of this, when you've done what we've talked about from the beginning of this series to the end and all of my prior stuff that I've talked about and how to litigate personal injury case and try a case, you put your heart and soul into it. You brought it. That's it. Then it's up to the jury. Then it's the worst part of what I think of trying cases is waiting for the verdict, right? Sometimes it goes your way. They give you what you asked for or close to it or more. Sometimes it doesn't and you lose. That hurts because you put it all in. Cases I've lost have been the hardest on me ever. Much worse than the biggest cases I've ever won. I remember the heart, the loss is much more, they hurt. But all you can do, it's what we signed up for as a profession is bring it. So there you have it. We have now completed um, the series. I hope you will join me uh, in the mentorship program. I hope you will join, meet with me for 30 minutes. And I hope that you will join me for talking about construction accident cases. I'm gonna start in my next round of series, getting into specific cases. First, we're gonna do construction accidents, then perhaps medical malpractice in the spring, uh, and then some others. So thank you all for staying with me. Hang on for the q and I'm going to get to them right now. Let's get to the first one. Well, of course, evaluation popped up. Just give all excellence and then close it out. It's easy. All right. Um, Daniel's asking about adjusting strategy for a bench trial. It's a great question. Um, usually, you're not going to be trying a catastrophic accident case in a bench trial unless you are the unlucky person like I was in trying a catastrophic uh, double leg off case in front of a court of claims bench judge. Um, and that was one of those that didn't go our way. And it was brutal. And court of claims cases, you ask anybody who's tried them on a big case, they are tough. Talk about playing on uh, being home, home fielded. When you go to the state, you got a state judge, state lawyer. It's just, it's, it's brutal. And you'll often get at a bench trial, the judge say, there's no jury here, save it. No jury here, save it. Move on, counselor, move on. It's tough. And if you already have a, an unpleasant judge, you know, know your audience, okay? Know your audience. If it's a jury trial, your audience is your jury. If it's a bench trial, you're going to have to switch gears a little bit. You have to make things tighter. You're going to have to cut the rhetoric. You're going to have to cut the emotion. You're going to have to get right to it. Okay, and you're going to have to keep things tight and think about what a judge is going to want to know, what's going to persuade that judge. Do your homework. Find out who's tried cases in front of that judge. Look up all prior opinions. Uh, you know, preparation, preparation. The one advantage you have is you know you can find out a lot about your audience. 
because you can learn a lot about your judge. Um, in a jury trial, you can't until you get the jury in the, in the box. You still don't know a lot about them. So that's the best advice I can give you there. Okay. Um, and uh, Daniel, is that you're also asking how, are you, how is one supposed to testify procedure when they're trying the case ex parte? Um, I'm not sure. Um, feel free to reach out to me separately. Happy to chat with you about it. But again, the judge is going to control. You can, you'll be able to suggest this is, these are my witnesses. It's my witness list. Here's who I want to call. Um, and there'll be a pretrial conference, I'm sure with the judge and you can address everything at that time. Okay. Um, all right, Terrence, how are you? Thank you for the question on your liability charge within New York City. Do we use New York City traffic rules and regs or VTL as statutory predicates for violations? Yeah, of course. There's a charge uh, that a jury can give uh, for a statutory violation, where a jury can consider a statutory violation as some evidence of negligence. So you certainly want to put in there and in your request to charge um, to, the, to the court, uh, whatever VTLs you feel you've established um, have the evidence has shown a violation of, and that should certainly go into the jury charges and you can talk about that. You can talk about that statute. All right, Didi, your case does not involve catastrophic injuries. Do you still spend the money on experts? Didi, what are you doing in this program if it's not a catastrophic case? Just kidding. Um, yes, the answer is yes. You have to spend the money on experts. It is a problem I know that we all run into. Nobody likes to have to write checks where we all have cash flow problems on the plaintiff's side. Uh, just because you get good results doesn't mean all your cases are settling and you can go for a while without cases settling and using your credit line. And last thing you wanna do is start writing checks, big checks for experts, but you gotta do it. You gotta come up with the money, uh, get a credit line, put it in out of your own pocket um, or team up with a firm that can take it over and spend the money because you're doing a disservice to your, your case and your client, if not, because that's what makes the difference in a case. It just does. I mean, we just settled a case that, but for spending the money on getting the right live, it was a jet ski accident. We brought in, we found a top jet ski expert. Uh, we found a top doctor to evaluate our client for her specific type of injuries, well-credentialed. Neither of these experts were inexpensive. But we got them disclosed relatively early on but prior to a mediation, and they saw what was coming down the pike, and it did the job. And if it didn't do the job, they were going to be great at trial. So that's what gets cases settled. You can't bluff your way. Those days are pretty much gone. You may get lucky once in a while, but spend the money. It'll come back to you. It's a reimbursable expense, so you just got to hang in there, and it's going to set you up for settlement. And if not, then you're going to be in the best case scenario, because if you get to trial and you haven't settled the case, you haven't spent the money, it's going to be a problem. So do it. All right. Um, Peter, what times of the year do you consider the best and worst to try a good plaintiff's case? Um, I don't know many of us that have that option of choosing the time of year. I don't think I ever have. I know that I've always tried to punt August because I like to try and take it a little bit easier at some time in the calendar year. And August traditionally has been that time, although not so much anymore. Um, you know, the status of trials are so rare these days that you take it when you can get it because that's when you're going to bring your case to it. Um, traditionally, people say it's always nice to do it around Thanksgiving or Christmas time family holidays, 
people relate to their family during that. I don't think it matters, to be honest with you. I really don't think what time of year makes any difference uh, in the case. Um, so sorry that uh, I don't have a more specific answer. If anybody else on the, in the program here has any thoughts, please drop those in the chat. All right, John. Hey, what's up, John? Thank you for your question. Do I call DME chaperones at trial to contest the IME doctor's account of the exam? Any prerequisites to calling them at trial, uh, such as a 3101 disclosure? Great question. So what John's referring to, if you don't know what the DME and IME is, it's when the defense has the plaintiffs uh, examined by a doctor. The defense calls that an IME, an independent medical exam. Most plaintiff's lawyers call it a DME, a defense medical exam. You can choose whatever letters you'd like to use. It's the same exam. It's done for the defense by someone picked by the defense. And you can have a chaperone. There are uh, sponsors for the academy. Uh, there are services that will go with your client, sit there while they're examined, take notes of how long they were there, all nine minutes of it, what questions were asked, who was presented, what they did. So this way, um, if the expert comes in and testifies that, uh, oh, yes, we spent an hour and I did this test and that test, you can then call a rebuttal witness to say, no, that's not what happened. I was sitting there. And it's good to use these outside services because if you're there as the lawyer, you can't call yourself. Um, if you send a paralegal, yeah, or someone from your firm, maybe you can bring them, but it's nice to bring an uh, an outside person. Uh, it's not an expert disclosure. They're not giving opinions. So you don't need to do a 3101 and it's rebuttal testimony. So you just, at the start of the trial, when you're going over the witnesses, you say, your honor, uh, just to be clear, the plaintiff may call a rebuttal witness uh, in response. If the defense does call a doctor that they designated, uh, we did have our client with a chaperone who, depending on what comes out at the exam and in cross-examination, we may be calling that witness at the time of trial. So that's how it handled it. Courtney, hi. What if your plaintiff's expert could also be fairly be characterized as a hired gun? Do you still go full fair game on defendant's expert for that? Good question. So you got to be smart about your experts. You know, this is where the credibility comes in. It amazes me. I've talked about this time and time again when I see um, Dr. Bonomo, Dr. Head. I mean, these doctors have been examining my clients for 25 years and they were in their 70s 25 years ago, right? Or close to it. They are horrible testifiers. They, they examine thousands of plain, injured plaintiffs a year. They run their reports. There's a book on them. And I think that defense firms or insurance carriers use them because they're cheap and available and will say what they want. And it's the worst thing they can do. The worst thing they can do because you just get, they get destroyed at trial. So same thing on a plaintiff side. Don't use, I don't like to use what we call the mills these clinics that over all they do is have the same report, fill in the plaintiff's name, because that's going to look horrible. And yeah, they're going to be taken down just like you're going to take down the defense expert. So no, you can't call, call out the defense for having a hired gun. If you've got a hired gun, they're going to throw it right back at you. So that's the answer to your question. That's why you got to be careful. Uh, and if both of you have hired guns, then don't go there in your argument. Uh, just argue what you think is best as far as what's come out in each of their testimony. Uh, but that's why the importance of a 
credentialed, qualified expert is super important. I, my clients often ask me to send them to a doctor. Oh, I don't have anyone. Can you send me to someone? And my firm says, we really would rather not. Um, it doesn't look good. Um, can't you ask your, your primary care physician? Can you do some research? Um, we can, if push comes to shove, we'll try and research somebody for you. But we do not have doctors that we send clients to for that exact reason, okay? Because we don't want them to get taken down at trial. I don't want to lose the ability to take down a defense expert because my expert is equally uh, culpable, so to speak, okay? Hey, Matt, glad to see you got in. I know you didn't have the link originally. The Federal Torts Claims Act trial uh, is tougher than the New York Court of Claims. Yeah, got that right. Federal Tort Claims Act, I liken that. For those of you who haven't dealt with that, that's like uh, Indiana Jones trying to get to the stone and you got to like step over the, the proper stones. Otherwise, all the like darts come out at you. That's that's what it's like trying to manage, uh, litigate. Forget about trying a Federal Torts Claims Act. Good luck to you. Um, I don't I stay away from those cases. I get called on about them a lot. They are tough. All right. Uh, Patricia, can you discuss strategy with a pretrial expert disclosure to the other side? Um so you're asking me about my strategy and expert disclosures, if that's the question. Um, you want to disclose as much as you can. I mean, there's no secrets here. I don't like to attach reports unless I have a real particular reason to do it. But you want to put out there as much as you can as to what they've reviewed, um, what the basis is, what their qualifications are, what their opinions uh, you expect to be. You're going to attach all the exhibits you want them to reference and say, we expect them to be referencing these exhibits. You want to give full disclosure. The last thing you want to do is get to trial and have a judge uh, sustain an objection that you didn't properly disclose something. So the witness either can't testify or can't use an exhibit. So be careful. Uh, federal court, you've got to give reports. State court, you have to comply with rule 30101 D1 of the CPLR. Uh, read it, know it, learn it. Bye-bye. Um, if it's a treating doctor, you are not required in state court to give an expert witness disclosure, um, but it doesn't hurt to send a letter that you are going to be calling the plaintiff's treating physician who's going to testify as to causation and, uh, and future costs of care and treatment needed. What we'll often do is we'll ask, unless the records are really typed and nice from the treating physicians, we'll usually request a narrative report where we have a letter that we send to the doctor and say, can you please issue us a narrative report where you identify records reviewed, give an opinion as to causation, permanency, um, all of that. And then they'll charge you what they're going to charge you. It's not cheap, but you'll usually get that. And oftentimes we'll disclose a narrative. Um, so that's helpful because then you have a chance to review it uh, before disclosing it. Okay. Um, Christopher. Dealing with objections during your opening and close. Good question. First of all, I rarely, I do not like to object. I talk about this in trial schools. I don't like to object during depositions. I don't like to object during openings, closings, or pretty much anything. Because, you know, it, it, it interrupts flows. It's a waste of time in all accounts. Uh, you don't want a jury to get annoyed at you for objecting too much and interrupting what they want to try and hear. So you only object when it's really something that's objectionable. We can talk about that uh, at a different time. But opening and closing is one of those where, you know, you definitely don't want to be objecting a lot. And if you get objected to, 
what I do is I'm standing up, I'm delivering. The objection comes. I just pause. I don't even look back. I pause and I look to the jury and I wait for the judge to rule. And the judge will either sustain or, or overrule it. And then I continue to move on. Uh, don't let it interrupt your flow, your vibe. Uh, just like it doesn't even bother you. You just stop and then you continue on. And if they object a lot, it's going to look bad. A jury's going to get annoyed. Okay. If you've prepared properly, there should be nothing objectionable. So if they do object, then it will be overruled. Again, in opening, as long as you say, we expect the evidence to show, we expect to prove, we intend to prove, those types of things, you'll be fine. You just can't say the evidence uh, shows uh, because there is no evidence yet. All right. Um, someone's, Patricia's asked me to run through the costs of experts. Look, there's so many different types of experts. Experts charge a lot for lots of different things. I think uh, Michelle can probably dig up. I'm pretty sure I've done uh, a, a CLE on working with experts and I probably give ballparks on costs. So take a look in the library or reach out to Michelle. Um, but there's a lot. Bottom line is good experts aren't cheap. Don't try and find the cheapest expert. All right. Pay for a good expert. Get the best qualified credentialed expert that has an expertise in your specific type of situation and find the money and spend it. Now, if you have an option between two similar experts and one has a cost a lot more than the other and it's a close enough call, then you can make a judgment call on how much you're going to spend. Um, but I can't give you an answer on what all experts cost. It really runs the bill, the mill. And it depends how much work they do. I mean, I just sent a check for $33,000 to a biomechanical engineer. And that was just for one part of the work that was done. Okay. Um, I've, I've written checks to doctors for $25,000. I've written checks to doctors for $2,000. Uh, but rarely do I just write a check for $500 to a doctor who's an expert. So that helps you. All right. Um, all right, William. Hey, William's asking me, a defense IME reads like a plaintiff narrative, ways to get in a defense IME report without them producing their doctor at trial. Missing witness, yes, but report is a home run. Thoughts? Good question. Um, I mean, I would definitely subpoena the doctor. Um, I would try and get it, get it in. I do some research. I, it may be hard. Uh, maybe I just don't know the answer to it. Uh, but I think that, I mean, most of the uh, expert reports are affirmed or sworn to. So I think that gives you a basis to get it in, especially if you can show that you've subpoenaed the doctor and the doctor has not complied with it. Uh, I think it's probably the best way to get it in. And I would certainly do that. Um, I'd subpoena it as a record. I'd subpoena the doctor. I'd do a Ducas Tecum subpoena, everything you can and make a big stink about it. And uh I'm confident that there's probably some case law out there on it that I just don't have top of mind, but I, I feel pretty good about getting it in one way or another. Um, I think it's probative and, uh, and I would do it. So I think you got a good shot. Good luck with that. Uh, Daniel, uh, question off topic. It's matrimonial. I know nothing about matrimonial. Um, so procedural grounds, matrimonial bench trial. Call up Amy Richter. Sorry, Amy, but she's a presenter for the Academy, top matrimonial lawyer. So she might be better to, to reach out to with that question. Robert, hey, what's up? How would you handle a client with a prior felony conviction who may need to testify? Good question. This is one of those things that you bring out, 
okay? You don't necessarily bring it out on opening, but you can't take a chance if you know it's allowed to come in, which prior felony convictions for the most part are going to come in, they are permissible uh, for the most part. Uh, and if you do your homework and find out that this one is likely to come in on cross-examination, then you bring it out pro preemptively and proactively on direct examination. Say, you know, plaintiff, I hate to bring this question up, but, uh, you know, have I think it's important that the jury know this in full disclosure. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? And they'll say, yes. Okay. Can you tell the jury about that? And then you've worked on them. You've prepared them. Yeah. It was a long time ago. I was a stupid kid. I got in with the wrong crowd with drugs and guns. And I, I got nailed. Rightfully so. I got sent to jail. It was the hardest time of my life for me and my family. So on and so forth. I did my time. Um, fortunately, I was able to get a job in construction. It was one of the few places that I could get a job that they didn't hold that against me. And that makes it even harder now for me now because of my injuries in this accident to get another job. You know, it's hard enough to get a job, not having more than a high school education. Um, now you throw a felony conviction in it. Uh, and now I'm, I can't use my legs, you know, it stinks. So you bring it out, whatever it is, sometimes it's tougher fact pattern, you know, domestic abuse. You, but if you know it's coming out, you deal with it on your terms. You just have to. Uh, and that's going to help you with your credibility. Again, as I just said, credibility is huge, huge. All right. Um, Peter, have you tried a good plaintiff's case since COVID? Do you think COVID has had an effect on jurors? And if so, how do you deal with it? I have not. I've not tried a case since COVID. So I do not have an answer for that. There was a lot of questions about it immediately following the September 11th attacks. People were saying, you know, how am I ever going to get a jury to award damages when people have been trapped in the towers and then died and, and, and all this horrific stuff has happened in our city? How can I go into the courthouse in Manhattan, you know, blocks away from this tragedy and say that my client's entitled to compensation for a fractured leg when they're alive? Um, and I think most people would say who've tried cases after and closely after, within a few years of, or even a year, that it didn't have that much of an effect. I think that um, if you do your job properly and get a jury focused on the facts and the arguments at trial, that you need to get them focused on what's going on in the outside world is likely not going to have a huge impact. May or may not. But um, I know there are people who have tried cases, so um, keep asking around if anyone in this Still have 300 plus people on chat, throw it in the chat if you've tried a case and let us know how it's going. I'd love to hear. Okay. Um, Christopher's asking, if a jury goes against you, can the judge award damages notwithstanding a verdict? Sure. Um, you can get a defense verdict and you argue to the judge that uh, it's contrary to the weight of the evidence and you can ask for a directed verdict. <laughs> Celeste, plaintiffs love Christmas verdicts. There you go. Celeste knows it. She's tried more cases than most of us. And um, she's been on the defense side. Uh, so there's a good answer for you. Thank you, Celeste. Um, yeah. Uh, hey, uh, <laughs> Miss Kim, how are you? I know you've tried some cases, I think. So you can chime in, I think, since COVID. I think you've done pretty well. So uh, you can share with everybody um, how you think the juries have been. Uh, someone's saying that maybe they're increasing awards. Hey, you know, there's 
think every case is still super, super different, you know, depending on the fact pattern and depending on your jurors. Some might be like, life's sweet. We want to make sure this person's compensated and enjoys the remainder of their years. We don't buy the argument that they're 80 and they only have a life expectancy of another five years and we should award less money. Let's award more money so they can go on a cruise around the world and enjoy it because life is short. I mean, who knows? Um, Dennis, Andrew, you say you do not like to object, but how do you protect the record without objecting? All right, so, so that I'm clear. I don't like to object, but if I need to protect the record, of course I'm going to object. If there's something that's, that's prejudicial, that's really bad, that I need to object to to pre preserve it for appeal, yeah, you have to do your job. So I object. I just don't object just because case uh, they're asking leading questions 10 times in a row. I may stand up and wait after the 10th time and say, your honor, counsel has been leading for the last 10 questions, objection, you know, sustain, move on, something like that. But of course, if they ask inappropriate questions, prejudicial questions, questions that shouldn't be asked, yes, you object. Okay. And yes, protect your record. That's very important, especially if they say something improper in their summation uh, you need to object, uh, you know, even if you don't like to object, but if the plaintiff's lawyer starts saying things that they're not allowed to in summation, and there are things you can't say, um, you have to object. Do it short and sweet. All right. Um, how do you use an expert's prior narrative reports during cross? It's tough. You have to make sure that it's uh, sworn to so that it is admissible. And if they've sworn to a statement and they said something that's helpful, you can impeach them with it. That's how you use it. Um, Celeste, uh, regarding the conviction, you might want to address it in voir dire if you know it's going to be allowed by the judge. Very good. Absolutely. Celeste brings up a great point. If you know something that is a, can be deemed as a negative in your case, it's going to come out in trial, then you might want to start right off the bat with jury selection. Talk about it. If you've got a client who is drunk at the time and you know that's going to be an issue and that's coming out, you talk about it. I like to talk about in my case where my client was intoxicated and fell on the train tracks because he blacked out. Of course, that was going to be an issue. I knew it was. And I spent a lot of time weeding out potential jurors, asking them, can you be open knowing I'm telling you he was lit, drunk, wasted, drunk, passed out and fell in the tracks. Can you be open to the fact that that doesn't give the transit authority the right to run him over? <laughs> okay. Um, if you can't, that's fine. We all have our, our opinions. And if you think that, yeah, he shouldn't have been there. He's wasted drunk. He has his responsibility. There's no way it can be fair. Great. Got rid of that juror. Okay. You have to bring this out. It's your obligation as a lawyer. When there's negative stuff, you bring it out. You talk about it to the extent you can. And you ask the jury, can you still be fair knowing that? Okay. Some jurors may say, you know what? I was held up at gunpoint, you know, 10 years ago. And I've been traumatized by it. Um, I'm not going to be able to be fair knowing that this guy was convicted for, you know, pulling a gun on somebody. You want to find out before you get to trial, if you know it's coming in. Thanks, Celeste. That's a great point. Um, okay, Steve, thank you all now for jumping in with these Q&As. When you worked for Pete Johnson, I believe that was Leahy and Johnson. Um, where'd you go? He did not want cases tried between Thanksgiving until New Year's Day. So there you go. You've heard now from two defense side that plaintiffs love the holidays. So be careful. Uh, 
And if you're playing, if I guess try and slot it in for right after Thanksgiving or right before Thanksgiving and continue before Christmas. Uh, afraid of a Christmas verdict. There we go. Um, all right. So here we're seeing jurors have been great post-COVID. 10 cases to verdict. Good for you. Good for you. Way to go. All right. They're just happy to get out of the house. It's really interesting, right? I mean, we all think about different things when we're wondering, you know, how a jury may respond with COVID. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily even think about it. They're happy to get out of the house and have something to do. I, I wouldn't even have thought about that and that they were engaged uh, because there are other people around and looking at that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, all right. And Celeste saying she doesn't think that uh, COVID's had a large impact. And I think that's probably about right. And uh, we are at 2.30. Thank you all for your questions, your comments, for hanging in there with me. Uh, listen to the podcast. Meet me. Let's meet. I want to meet you if we haven't. One-on-ones. Mentorship program. Fall series. I'm going to take August off from CLEs to try and get some work done. Uh, in the meantime, but I look forward to seeing all of you soon. Thank you. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD227. Again, that's POD227.